All right, we are in Esther chapter 6. I call tonight's lesson Justice. And um, I wanted to open with a story. Uh, I was like a rookie parent. So this is my son. And, my, my, and we've, got, we've got a son and a daughter. This is my son. So it's my first, first kid we got to bring home. And he was just inconsolable this one night. He, would, he, he was the greatest kid when it came to sleeping. He would sleep and sleep and sleep. He was just a great sleeper. But one night... And as a daddy, I had to build up my bag of tricks. Okay, so as the story ends, I will now have another bag, another trick for my bag. But we just, I just could not. Jennifer, my wife, was, you know, she was nursing him, and he just was, okay, he fell asleep, he woke up, and she needed to sleep. And so, so we were a nursing family, so I never had to take a turn in the middle of the night with bottles. I was totally blessed. But every once in a while, Jen just needed to sleep. So it's like, Joel, could you take him? And I took him. I had nothing I could do. I was doing all my, my impersonations, all my animal noises. I mean, I've got so many. And I just he, I, making him laugh, it was so great. He just would not quiet down. I had him in his car seat. I was swinging it. He was doing some, some arm curls with that thing, just trying to rock him to sleep in his car seat. Nothing would work. Nothing would work. I was at wit's end. It was the middle of the night. I did not know what to do. Everybody was trying to get to sleep except for him. And so finally, I tossed up a half-court basketball shot of a daddy move. I said, that's it. I can't take it anymore. We're going to McDonald's. It's like, I just got to go get me some fries or something. I just got to, I can't get my mind off this. And as you know, that was the best move of all. A baby that's not stopped crying, put that sucker in the car and go for a drive, and within two blocks, the crying is done. They put themselves asleep, and at that point, McDonald's was celebratory for me. But uh, I've added that trick to my, so, so now with his little sister, it's like, okay, the moment she was inconsolable, I'm like, oh, we're going to go for a ride. We're not going to mess around. But the things you come up with, the things that you figure out in the dead of night, when you're sleepless, and sleep is just not possible, that's going to be in our text tonight. But see, the tension last week was who's going to get to the king first? Because remember, Esther had, remember, okay, okay, Queen Esther, up, up until half the kingdom, what, what, do you, what do you want? What's your petition? What's your request? Come to a banquet. He comes to the banquet. What's your petition? What's your request? Come to one more banquet the next day. And meanwhile, Haman goes home and his, his and he's, he's crying and going crazy. He can't believe it. And his wife says, just erect this gallows and kill the guy. And he's like, well, I've got to get the king's permission first. So who's going to get to the king first? Haman or Esther? As we open our text tonight. Dear God, thank you for this lesson we get tonight. Thank you for your text. Esther 6 is great stuff. And God, you are um, a God who gives us a wonder, wonder, wonderful story in this Esther. And we get to learn not only about you, but ironically also about us and how we are to react when life is, doesn't just make sense. We give you the glory, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Esther 6, here we go. Let me turn there, turn there. Where'd you go? All right, here we go. So tonight it's called Justice. We start off with Sleepless, verses 1 to 5. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Wow. Some people count sheep when they can't sleep. This guy asked for a history book to be brought. Read me the boring stuff. 
Okay. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And we remember that. Remember who it was that made sure that uh, got the credit? It was Esther. She made sure way back in like, you know, in the beginning here that the plot got foiled and she made she took pains to make sure Mordecai got the credit. Here it is recorded. That's great. So Xerxes, rather than falling asleep, so number one here, a potential insomnia solution backfired. But it advances the story. So rather than falling asleep, some of you would, would, would turn to certain books of the Bible, and you'd read them. Maybe you'd say, oh, let's read Leviticus. That'll put me to sleep. Or, oh, let's read the book of Romans. Or, oh, let's read this, and that'll knock me out. Some people are very concerned about, like, oh, I can't sleep. Maybe Satan's attacking me and giving me spiritual warfare. Well, I don't know for sure, but I'll tell you this. As the old preacher line goes, if you think it's Satan keeping you up, start praying. The last thing he wants you to do is pray. But this guy's ordering for the Chronicles to be read to him. Some nice heavy reading there. Big, big tome. Let's read this. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, so he says, all of a sudden Xerxes comes across this whole story. And so rather than falling asleep, it piques his interest. So he's getting this thing in the middle of the night. And he's realizing... Yeah, what about that? What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Well, nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman, boo. Now Haman, as it happens, had just entered the outer court of the, of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. Wow. So in verse 4 here, the narrator gives us the tension we had last week. Haman is being the early bird, isn't he? He's not only going to get there in the early morning. Dude's there in the middle of the night. And he's probably thinking, well, do I wake up the king or do I not? He just happens to be there. His attendants answered, Haman's standing in the court. Bring him in, the king said. Dang. All's looking pretty good for Mr. Haman, isn't it? He doesn't have to wake up the king to get his, to get his permission, his imprimatur, to be able to put this guy to, to death. And he's just right there. And the king's done everything Haman's wanted to begin with. And here he is, like, do I wake the king up? Do I not wake the king up? He just happens to show up exactly when Mr. Xerxes has insomnia. And then he finds out he's there. And, oh, and the Xerxes is happy to see him. Come on in. Wow. Dang. All was looking pretty well for Mr. Haman. I just got to say Haman is standing in the court. We'll bring him in. So what ironic timing. So that, that, that's just it. It's, um, Haman's going to win that tension battle. Who's going to get to the king first? Um, Haman is. And that spells doom for Mordecai, we think. But Haman has no idea. So Haman's going to get to the king first, but I don't think he's going to want to get to the king first. Another irony. And this is the narrator, the beauty of the narrator story. He's giving us information that they have no idea about. Okay, the irony, six to nine. When Haman entered, boo, Haman, boo. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, I love that the narrator does this. This Esther real estate in the text is so precious. But he, the narrator goes to great lengths to give us what goes on in Haman's life. We've already heard what goes on in his living room. 
And now we're going to get what's inside of his head. Dang. All this time, we wanted to know what was inside of Mordecai's head. My goodness. Or Esther's head. What did she think about having to go spend one night with the king? About having to have this sexual contest? Who's going to win and become queen? We wanted to know what she thought about this. And we don't get that. We get this bozo Haman. Here it is. Well, Haman thought to himself, who is the oh, boo, yeah, boo. Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? He kind of turns into a puffed up peacock there. Wow. So he answered the king. It was as if the king is giving him a blank check and say, hey, keep putting zeros in for me. So he's like, oh, let's just roll out all the stops. He's thinking, the king wants to honor someone like me, so he's asking my advice on what, I, what should be done. And, oh, well, I'm just saying, how about all this? Okay, well, uh, for the man the king decides to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn. You know, you can go on eBay and order jerseys that athletes have worn. And if they are game-worn jerseys, they go for more than just a random jersey. This is a king-worn jersey. Dang. Bring the man a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden. So something is top is touched and something is bottom is touched. There you go. I'll be here all week. <laughs> one with the royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Wow. So let's talk here for a second. The motivation of Xerxes. He seems to be... Because again, the, the tension with, with what's going on in Xerxes' mind is that now that we know that Haman has no idea, I and mean, Haman's going to find out what's going to go on here, but now that we know that on, 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 on Xerxes' mind is this Mordecai guy, I don't know, the text never tells us that Xerxes knows that Mordecai is the one Haman hates. We know that because we've seen the interactions between Haman and, Xerxes, and Mordecai. All the text has said so far is Haman went before the king and said, King, there's a certain people, and I'll paraphrase, who are different and they keep themselves separate. They don't bow down. They don't follow the laws, blah, 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 blah. And uh, yeah, they, they're, they're not good patriots or whatever. And, uh, and I want to get rid of them. And uh, yeah, do what you think is right. He also doesn't say they're the Jews. So, we, so Xerxes, we're left to think, knows none of this. So his motivation and I've struggled with this, trying to figure out, I'm like going back in the text, going, well, what does he know? What does he know? Because if we're going on just what the text tells us, it's like, well, come on. Is he going to be messing with Haman here, or is he not messing with Haman here? Because what is his motivation? His motivation seems like he needs to do right by this guy that saved his life. Xerxes, for all of his issues, seems to be a guy of honor. So he's like, oh, and when he was half asleep and listening to the, 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 the chronicles being read, that stuck in his mind. He's like, hey, wait a minute. Stop there, attendant. Let me read me that again. Who was that again? Oh, what's been done for that guy? And okay, um, yeah, um, uh, 
all right, so now I need to find out, I need to do something for this guy, and I don't really know what to do, because probably I'll do the wrong thing, and I want to do the right thing, but I know who does know, and who's out there, Haman, oh my God, he, he's, he wears my ring, yeah, he's my dude, bring him in, he's my drinking buddy, he would know, come on, we all have that friend we can go to for advice, we know, oh yeah, that's the one, he'll give me the right thing to say, or she always knows the right thing to say, so he bring him in, and now he asks him his, his advice, I see Xerxes here having a good motivation. I don't see him messing with his boy here because the text doesn't really let us do that. He, from what, from, now, there could be things behind the scenes we don't know about, but we're not really allowed to surmise that because we just got what the text gives us. And, uh, well, the inner dialogue and motivation of Haman. Well, Haman's thinking, well, let's make it rain. This is huge. I'm going to make it as big as I can. And he's asking my opinion on how much he probably wants to honor me. So, yeah. Um, wow. We get the inner dialogue of Haman. He's, can't wait. It'd be nice to have the inner dialogue of Xerxes right there, but we don't exactly need it because we've, we've been getting enough, this, this text so far. Well, that's the irony. We can see how this is going to unfold. And for once, for once, Haman's not going to have it perfect, is he? Because there's just no way. All right, 10 to 11, the reversal. We've had sleepless, we've had irony, now reversal, 10 to 11. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Boo. Boo! Get the robe and the horse. This sentence is starting out really nice for Haman. It starts off really nice, doesn't it? And do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew. Now, anybody who thinks... Oh, come on. There's no way Xerxes just said that. He's got to be messing with this guy. The text doesn't give us that clue. Back when he had that talk with Haman again, Haman doesn't say it's the Jews. Haman knows it's the Jews because he's hell-bent on getting the Jews. And he's the Agag guy. Going back to Agag, back in the Samuel Saul story for, uh, books ago about get, you know, one of the most famous Hebrew Jewish kings and getting rid of uh, the, 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 the Amalekites and King Agag. And the, the narrator paints Haman with that Agag. So we know Haman hates the Jews and has been looking for a chance to get the Jews because when he finally gets it, he doesn't stop with Mordecai. He's like, I'm going to get your people. But see, Xerxes doesn't know that. When he sold the whole plan to Xerxes, he sold a kind of a patriotic thing. Yeah, there's a certain people. Not, hey, yeah, you know the Jews? Oh, yeah, the Jews. Yeah, they're, they're the good people. They make good, you know, good muffins. No, no, no. They're the ones who are going against you. Yeah, he didn't say that. So it's so interesting that Xerxes says Mordecai the Jew. And you know Haman's going to all of a sudden start going, he's going to get the heebie-jeebies here, I think. Wow. So Haman got the robe on the horse. He, he robed Mordecai. Wow. Oh, excuse me. He suggested for Mordecai, just as you have suggested, for Mordecai the Jew who sits in the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. Wow. Intentional honor for Mordecai the Jew. Haman obeys the king because you, you, you do not disobey the king. There's, just no, there's no choice here. Even though Haman is probably gritting his teeth when he says these words about Mordecai, you don't disobey the king. This is the king of kings, the most, most important, popular, powerful guy in the entire world, the entire universe for all that matter, for all they know. You don't disobey the king. It's done. 
Do not neglect anything. So Haman got the robe. Boo. Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I said that through gritted teeth. I think that's what he's going to do. I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Haman obeys the king. Mordecai goes for a ride. Xerxes doesn't know Haman is mad at Mordecai. He doesn't even know that Xerxes knows that, that Haman hates the Jews. Um, that's what makes us so awesome. Mordecai is going to finally get his justice. Wow. And it's going to come from the very one who is going to be the signaler of his doom. The very one who got promoted over him when, he, when Mordecai should have gotten promoted is the one who's going to give him his props. That's kind of cool. I don't think I could write a story like this. This is pretty cool how this works out. Man. Well, downfall 12 to 14. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman, boo. We're not going to have too many more boos left, by the way. Just a spoiler alert. He rushed home with his head covered in grief. And we got the smallest violin starting again. He told Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. More on this in a minute. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Boo. Yeah, I, I, don't, think, I don't think this is going to end well with Haman. This was Haman's last trip home, by the way. Spoiler alert. And they drag him out. So we got the responses of Mordecai and Haman. They're very telling. What's Mordecai do? He just had uh, the ultimate honor being paid to him. He just goes back to work, doesn't he? He's just like, eh. I don't know. The text doesn't say whether he was smiling. <laughs> my, my mom visited uh, Austria when she was in high school, and there was a joke that her, her, her Austrian like, brother there, like, she was a, a, a foreign exchange student, so you stay with a family, and the Austrian brother would ride around on a motorcycle, and he's like, I have a joke, I have a joke, here it is. How can you tell a happy motorcyclist? He has bugs in his teeth. Right? Just one of those jokes. You're like, oh, yes, that's great. Let's go away. Well, I don't know if Haman has bugs in his teeth. I don't know. I don't know if he enjoyed the ride. I don't know if anything. We don't get that at all. All we know is he gets done. He just goes back, goes back to his spot. It doesn't seem like his life has changed at all. Whereas Haman, oh, my gosh, more of the drama. Goes back home. His life is just wrecked. And fair enough. I mean, this had to be like the, the zero moment of his life. But still, that's, wow. Zeresh and her friends offer little solace. In fact, their words bring immediate fulfillment. Wow. Let's take a moment here. You've got your page. You've got your writing utensil. Could you write your thoughts down? There's a question in blue. Take a moment to marinate and then the surprising verse 13. Read verse 13 just for a moment to yourself. This verse kind of sticks in my craw. I never gave this verse much thought until preparing for this lesson. 
and it just rocks my world. Man, it's a surprising verse. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. How does she know that? Why does she have to bring up the Jew thing? I don't get that. I want to say this is the narrator giving us a character who's speaking more than she knows and who's just kind of being like a little prophet speaking better than she really does know. But I don't know. She brought up the whole Jewish thing. See, see, here's why this verse kind of upsets me. I want this verse to immediately say, they're God's people, don't you know that? Like, bring God in here. Don't just bring up the Jew thing and then not bring up their God. I want her to say, yeah, they call themselves God's chosen people and you just messed with them, so you know you're going to die now. It's like, hey, thanks, wife. Things I'd like to know maybe three chapters ago, but still, I don't like this verse for that reason. I want more here. She really has no business uttering this line. The best we could get is like most pagan polytheistic cultures, they were superstitious. I guess the more gods and goddesses you have, the more they got to play against each other. And so you start to get superstitions. The Romans were like this too. So we're not surprised in Matthew's account of the crucifixion thing with Pilate, that Pilate's wife says, hey, hey, that guy, he's, he's innocent. I had a nightmare about him. Get away. And Pilate washes his hands of the whole nonsense. So we're used to these in scripture that God is certainly able to, able to use dreams and use like nightmares. And it's like, hey, I got this bad feeling about this. I've got to get away from this guy. We want God to be here finally. We want God to, she, I, I want her to bring up God. She's bringing up all this. Why not drop that? And she doesn't. Why is this tension here? Well, look in the big, the big purple text here I put in there. This is what we're used to. This is David standing before uh, the, the valley where, where Goliath's on one side and the Philistines and the, the, the Israelites on their side. And by the way, the first king, Saul, he was a head taller than everybody else. He's the tallest dude in the land. I'm just saying, if there's ever a guy to take on tall Goliath, how about tall Saul? The dude's hiding in his tent. I digress. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? Listen to little David, bring it. Who is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Mic drop, dang. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you all into our hands. 
Or how about in Proverbs 21.30, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. That's what Zeresh is saying, except in a secular humanistic way. They're Jews. No plan's going to succeed against the Jews. It begs a question. Why? You have no business making that statement, Zeresh, except... Maybe you got some superstition and maybe you're fig figuring, okay, you've heard your husband uh, complain and whine about this Mordecai guy for a few chapters and nothing good has come of it. So you've seen the writing on the wall, I guess, pun intended. And you've seen that and you've said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This Mordecai the Jew, you, your thing with the Jews, yeah, this isn't going to end well because it hasn't ended well yet. That's the best we can do. Because otherwise we have no idea why she said what she said. We look at it from the eyes of faith. Oh, we get it. We see what God's doing. We see God doing the great reversal. We see God using the, 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 the everyday events of life to, to show his sovereign plan. But just looking at the text, we can't say that because God's not there explicitly. That's our, that's our overall Esther tension. Where the heck is God? Why does God seem absent? God seems absent and Zeresh utters that line. Dang. This verse just kills me. Well, We've got injustice, we've got waiting, we've got moving forward, learning from Mordecai's life. So Mordecai has gone from, uh, he, he's been his own kind of drama queen too, hasn't he? We haven't heard, learned anything about Mordecai, except what he says and what he does. He tells Esther, um, yeah, um, go do your thing when you get your chance, and don't share who you are or, or whose you are. And... Um, yeah, I guess please the king and don't share who you are. I mean, it's, he tells her, you know, don't, he commands her not to do it, and she doesn't. And then when things start to happen, he realizes, well, crap, um, I'm going to start wailing, and I'm going to put a sackcloth and ashes and, and get everybody's attention and get everyone else with me to do it. And, and Esther comes to me, and I'm going to finally give her her marching orders, like this is your chance. And um, we just don't get the inner workings of Mordecai's mind. We're, we're left to look at what he does. And now Mordecai is, he never got the justice he deserved. He did that proverbial good deed that never, that went unpunished. He didn't really, he did the good deed that didn't, he didn't get punished, but he didn't get rewarded. And then he got punished by the one that got rewarded instead of him. And he got threatened and the Jews were all going to die. And, and yeah, 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 it's just terrible. So he finally gets what's coming to him in a good way. And he's just like, Whatever. We don't see anything here. So how can we learn about having to wait when we go through the bad injustices of life? We're forced to wait upon the Lord. So we can't really bring waiting upon the Lord into Esther, but we can do it in our own life. When we have to wait, when we have to trust in God's timing, which sometimes is so unnervingly frustrating because we want it to be our timing, sometimes we approach God with our prayer list, and with one little line at the bottom that gives God a space for validating our parking. Okay, God, I've already got everything figured out. Would you just, just ratify it? And other times we come before God, like, I don't know what to say, God. Both are good times to pray, by the way. We're told in Scripture, bring your petitions before God. Other times, come to God with a blank piece of paper. It's like, God, I don't know what to pray about. Can we just talk? Can we just be quiet together? Put things on my mind, and I'll share with you and, and write things down. I don't know. I know what Mother Teresa once said when asked, when, what, do you, what, do you, what do you pray? What do you say when you pray to God? I, I listen. Well, then what does he say? Well, he listens too. 
prayer time is just meant to be a time of together. It can be a time of togetherness with you and Almighty God. Intimacy that we get because Jesus paid it all. So what do we learn from Mordecai's life? Well, um, what could Mordecai control or have influence over? And what did Mordecai not have influence over? That's how you are to live your life. What can you control and what can you not control? The things you cannot control, your response is, trust God. The things you can control, your response is, honor God. I don't know. I don't know exactly what you're going through. There are things Mordecai couldn't control. He had to leave things, you know, for such a time as this. Esther, get in there and plead and beg. He didn't know what was going to happen. He still doesn't know what's going to happen. All of a sudden, in the midst of all that, he gets paraded around. He's probably thinking, what in the Sam Hill is going on here? Is, 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 did Esther's plan work? The plan I gave her? Did that work? I don't know. All of a sudden, I'm being celebrated and not killed. Okay. The Jews, are we all going to die still? What's the deal? What can he control? And what, what, what has he no control over? If you're losing sleep over the things you can't control, you're not trusting God. Enough. And if you're seeking to honor yourself over the things you do have control, and I, I say that with God's full sovereignty, is there anything you really have control over that God doesn't? It's like that old line, let go and let God, please. It's not, okay, I'm going to let go of things, God, so you can finally have a crack at it. As if he's mopping his brow and pacing the corridors of heaven and wondering when I'm going to shut up so I can finally get out of the way so we can work. Heck no. That's, that, that makes me 1% God and he's 99% God. But still, what do you have control over and what don't you have control over? And honestly, that, that's our text tonight. We've got the tension of what does, what does Xerxes know? And we just got to land that he doesn't know what... We can't really give him bad motivations here. And the story is going to get great because after years of waiting, things are going to fly now. Oh my gosh. Chapter 8, chapter 9 is huge, but it's so good. And chapter 10 is like three verses. But yeah, things are going to fly. Um, Haman's toast. It's not going to end well for him because we can already see it. We can already see what's going to happen. And Zeresh is speaking better than she knows. She's already told Haman, your downfall has already started. Man. Dude comes home for some encouraging words from his lovely wife. It's like asking Mrs. Lincoln, hey, besides that, how was the play, huh? It's like, give me some encouraging words, honey. Oh, yeah, well, you went against the wrong guy. Your downfall has already started. You're done. Crispy critters. And by the way, before I can finish coughing, they're dragging him out. I don't know what to say. Um, we don't, we're not crying many tears from this guy, but still his downfall, and yeah, what, what, what are you able to control? Maybe that's a bad way to put it. Kind of what are you powerless over? The things in your life, like, I feel this big decision. Well, okay, what, what can you influence and what can't you influence? Maybe that's a way to put it. What, do you have any influence at all in your situation? Well, yeah, if I act this way at work, I might be viewed favorably. If I, you know, if I, if I you know, make amends with this person, if I, if I make sure that, the, that I, I live a godly life amongst these people and don't live like a hypocrite, what do you have influence over and what do you not have influence over? That's it. And rest with those two answers. One's going to lead you to trust and one's going to lead you to obey. 
You know, trust and obey, that old hymn. That old hymn came about because they were at some uh, preaching conference and they asked some, some, some old yokel in the crowd, hey, what about, what about the gospel? Well, I just know two things. You've got to trust and you've got to obey. And the hymn writer was right there going, yeah, trust and obey for there's no other way. Just writing all this down like, yeah. You're either going to trust or you're going to obey. And the things you can't control, you trust. The things you have some influence over, you better be giving God glory with how you interact. There you go. That's how you deal with life before things get all figured out. And I say that as a Christian talking to Christians. I cannot say that from the text. Because we are just having to look at faith and read faith into this, which is always a dangerous thing to read in. Because it just doesn't seem to be here. This is not cut and dry. This is messy. This is awkward this text but that's uh that's Esther chapter 6 make sure let me share